Welcome to Making the Minute Story, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And I remember when I was a little kid, I went to London with my dad, and he was taking me around all the sites, all the statues, and the old buildings, and the palaces, and I think uh, I was just waiting to see a knight, because that's what I thought was in England. And my dad, being my dad, was explaining to me everything that we saw and the history of it. And I remember going to that quintessential monument of British tourism, Trafalgar Square. And I must have been, you know, maybe 12. And so for me, Trafalgar Square was just a pigeon sanctuary, because that's what it looks like. There's just tons and tons of pigeons. But my dad pointed out to me Nelson's column sitting right in the middle of it, this big Corinthian column, and on top of it you see this statue of a person who you can't really see from the ground. And he explained to me that this entire square was honoring this admiral named Horatio Nelson, who in 1805 had killed the French in a big, big naval battle. And then my dad said, Brendan, basically all of the monuments that we've seen are honoring people who killed the French or who killed, you know, lots of Catholics. And he was joking, of course, but there's a big grain of truth in that, in that what we might call British identity had a really, really important strain of anti-Catholicism. And I'm going to try to explain that today. Um, One of the big trends that I want to point out is that as uh, British society changed and expanded due to all of the uh, social and cultural effects that we've been talking about with the rise of the modern world, this anti-Catholicism became increasingly difficult to sustain. Not, you know, with the mass and rabble of the people who might have uh, just hated the Pope as a matter of principle, but instead with the people who were participating in this new cosmopolitan world where they were brushing up against strangers through transportation, communication, and conquest. Before I jump into that, I just want to explain a little bit of why I'm doing this. Over the break, I read a lot about the connection between religion and politics and society in the time period that I'm interested in, and that was because I've never really paid much attention to it at all. Uh, This oversight is just basically because of my personality. I'm not a religious person, wasn't raised with any kind of religion, Uh, nothing in my development was had anything about any spiritual struggle or anything. Um, I don't really find religion very interesting. I go to churches and cathedrals and mosques and temples and stuff when I'm traveling, but it's just to see the pretty architecture and to get like that, you know, cultural experience that we get when we're traveling. But as you're looking at British history, you keep on bumping up against religion as this really, really central thing in people's lives. It really, really mattered, not just as a spiritual component, but also it seems to be one of the central cornerstones of the British state. Uh, You know, the church wasn't simply a place that people went for spiritual succor. It was part of, you know, this uh, amalgam of the king and the parliament and the church. The church was established. It was part of the state and it served the interests of the monarchy. And to me, that just is something that I have skimmed over over the past 
six years or however long I've been studying British history. And this, you know, massive amount of skimming has led me to be kind of crappy on this subject, which is worrying when I look forward to my comprehensive exams in six weeks and I am preparing for one of my, you know, eminent professors to ask me a question about the Ben-Gurion controversy. So, the next couple episodes, I'll be trying to wend my way through a bunch of these religious topics, and because I am not super, you know, well-versed in it, I might be treading on asshole monthly territory here. So, let's now move on to the topic at hand, anti-Catholicism. Now, Britain became what we might call Protestant country with Henry VIII, probably the English king who you remember if you remember an English king. He stands really, really familiar to us. You probably imagine the Hans Holbein the Younger portrait of uh, Henry VIII where he's, you know, looking at you straight on and he's dressed in these beautiful robes and he's really pudgy and he's bedecked with jewels and he has this, you know, gaping codpiece loincloth thing that's just staring right at you and he looks every bit like a 16th century Biggie Smalls. Well, what you probably know about Henry VIII is that he had a penchant for killing and divorcing his wives because he wanted to get a son uh, to inherit the throne. And part of this, you may remember, had to do with breaking away from the Catholic Church who wouldn't grant Henry VIII the divorces that he wanted. But it wasn't entirely clear exactly what the Church of England was after it broke away. Was it a Protestant church, like those that were in Germany and the Netherlands, which were kind of crazy and grumpy and liked to break, you know, icons and, you know, strip away all of the beauty from the churches? Or was it like a breakaway Catholic church that would have all the icons and the rites and all the Latin, but just instead of being headed by the Pope, being headed by the King? The big change comes with the rise of Queen Elizabeth, who was, of course, Henry VIII's kid. And with her, England develops this kind of neither fish nor fowl, half-Catholic, half-Protestant amalgam, which is called latitudinarianism. It's not entirely, you know, the grim, dry Calvinist churches of the Netherlands, and, of course, it is not the incense-dripping, um, you know, surplus-wearing, communion-taking uh, 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 people of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, this was enshrined in two big things. Uh, the 39 Articles, which were a bunch of theological articles that people were meant to subscribe to, and the Book of Common Prayer. But the problem was is that Elizabeth had uh, half-siblings who were Catholic, and so the international Catholic order that wanted to keep Britain within the fold wanted Elizabeth out and her siblings in. And this led to there being kind of this grim and dark international conspiracy to knock Elizabeth off the throne, which made people freaked out. This did not stop when Elizabeth died and her nephew, James I, ascended the throne. His mom was Catholic, but he was raised Protestant in Scotland, and so he was not a threat to the Protestant order. But he was uh, the target of a bunch of assassination attempts. The one that we remember most is the Gunplatter plot, uh, which, you know, you remember because of the movie V from Vendetta and all of those Guy Fox masks that you see whenever you meet an asshole on the internet. 
but this was a plot by Catholic conspirators to blow up the Parliament and the King so that Britain could become Catholic again. And it's not like there weren't Catholics in Britain who wanted to see this happen, which made people even more freaked out. The 17th century is basically a long story of people getting really, really freaked out by Catholicism. One of the reasons for this is James I's kids turned out to be a little bit Catholic themselves, which led to one of them getting his head chopped off and uh, one of his grandkids getting booted out of the country in the Glorious Revolution. Let's talk about the Glorious Revolution just skipping ahead through the civil wars of the 1650s because I don't want to deal with them. The Glorious Revolution is one of the keystone dates of, the, of British history. It stands in the old Whig history as the moment in which the British constitution, you know, rises up. This balance between king, parliament, and lords becomes really, really solid. Uh, it is the birth of the constitutional monarchy. And why we get 1688, why we get the Glorious Revolution, is that the previous king, James II, was a Catholic and was doing all this stuff that made people freaked out that he was going to make the whole country Catholic again. He was trying to make a coalition between non-Anglican Protestants called dissenters and uh, also Catholics so that there would be a repeal of all of the punitive laws against people who weren't Anglican. This got people even more freaked out when he had a kid. He was really old and people didn't think that he would have a kid, but when he had a kid, it became really likely that the kid would be educated Catholic and then the kid would be the next Catholic King of England and Scotland and Wales, and this would be a problem. Nobody liked this. The Whigs, who were you know, often uh, made up of dissenters, didn't like it because they didn't want a Catholic state. And the Tories, who would have been the king's best friend because they were all about the divine right of kings, didn't want this to happen because they were devoted to the Anglican Church. They were devoted to the confessional state. And so this coalition of Whigs and Tories started negotiating with the Dutch stadtholder William of Orange to somehow help out with the problem. Through a bunch of miscommunications and problems, uh, William of Orange lands in uh, Britain in 1688 with an army, and he basically just walks all the way to London without much trouble. James II gets really freaked out. He leaves the country, throwing the, the Great Seal into the River of London, and everybody says that he advocates the throne, and William of Orange gets into the, uh, uh, London and is crowned William III, making a new dynasty. The important thing to note about this is that the beginning of this fundamental moment of British history, the, the start of this constitutional monarchy, has at its center a distrust of Catholicism. The only reason why this strange, grumpy, foreign guy from the Netherlands is invited over to take over the crown of you know, England and Scotland and Wales is because he's not Catholic. Later on in the 18th century, another controversy opens up when there is worries about the succession after Queen Anne dies in like the 1700s. The problem is, is that if you believe in hereditary succession, if you believe that the monarchy goes through the blood because of the divine right of kings, well, the next person up in the throne is James II's kid 
who's not only in a, a Catholic. He's not only a Catholic, but he's hanging out in France, Britain's hated enemy, the country that Britain had been fighting a war with for about like 15 or 20 years. And people did not relish the idea that once Anne died, there would be a Catholic successor to the throne. And so there was this political controversy that arose when people tried to make a law that said that one of the things that you needed to be if you wanted to be the king or queen of England was that you needed to be a Protestant. Once this got passed, and it got passed, it meant that pretty much everybody in the line of succession was skipped over. And the uh, next heir to the British throne, who was a Protestant, was this kind of obscure elector of Hanover who had a small German state. When Anne died in 1715, this meant that the next king would be a German person who nobody had really spent a ton of time with. And this was disputed. When George I, the first Hanoverian monarch, came over, uh, there was a lot of trouble going on. The big division was between Whigs and Tories. And I just want to emphasize for all of the me's out there who try to ignore religion and politics, the divisions between Whigs and Tories often came down to philosophical divisions about what the church should be like. So Whigs uh, were uh, often all about toleration. They wanted there to be a more open sort of confessional state where people could be dissenting in some ways, where there might not be as many um, problems with, with being a dissenter. Tories believed in the divine right of kings, passive obedience, and non-resistance. This meant that for Tories, the Glorious Revolution was a big, big problem because it was all about, you know, not the divine right of kings. It was all about not passive obedience. It was not about not non-resistance. Uh, they had kicked out a king and brought over somebody who was, you know, kind of only barely related to him just because they didn't like his religion. Well, in 1715, there were a number of prominent Tories, uh, notably this dude named Bolingbroke, who were really interested in, you know, dodging the Hanoverian succession and going back to the Stuarts to go over to Paris and to get, you know, the pretender to the throne to come in and claim his rightful place after Anne had died. Now, George I, the Hanoverian king, did indeed come and take the throne. And once this happened, all of the Tories who had been clamoring for his opponent to join the crown were, you know, put on watch. They were kicked out of politics for, you know, basically 30 or 40 years. And this wasn't helped by the fact that there were two big uprisings where uh, French-funded fleets uh, came over and basically invaded the country. One happened in 1715 uh, with the election of King George, and the other was in 1745. In both cases, we have a kind of similar pattern. You have people landing with French troops in Scotland and one of the Stuarts who has a claim on the throne, and they walk around Scotland and they get a bunch of support, and then they slowly move south with uh, you know, varying success. They fail. Both of these invasions fail. But they freaked people out. They You didn't want French armies invading Scotland and coming in with the pretender to the throne. And all of this is to say that the political sentiment 
of the early 18th century was all about anti-Catholicism. It was all about shoring up the Anglican Church against the threats on one side from dissent and enthusiasm and the threats on the other side from France and the Catholic state and invasions and the Stuarts and all of those things that were conspiring to destroy the confidence that people had in the Hanoverian succession. I mean, the early days of the Georges were really not very stable. Not only was there, you know, the rage of party where the Tories and the Whigs were fighting each other tooth and nail, but people just didn't participate in the rituals of deference and loyalty to the crown. People would not, you know, ring the bells for the king's birthday like they should. People would, in inns and taverns, instead of, you know, having toasts to the king, would have toasts to the Stuart pretender. Um, this was a problem in a deeply hierarchical society where, you know, ideas of order were enmeshed in daily cultural rituals like this. And it was a problem that the Hanoverians were worried about. They tried to get people to have loyal, you know, bell rings on the king's birthday, on the birth of children, and all of those, you know, civil occasions. They tried to get people to have big parties on Guy Fawkes Day to celebrate the British people trouncing the, 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 the hideous Catholic conspiracy, or at least, you know, avoiding it. But this anti-Catholicism at the root of the British state had problems as you went further into the century as, you know, the expanding national market and the expanding reach of British power pushed it into, you know, getting more and more control over Catholic people. Of course, you know, the ground zero of this is the British occupation of Ireland. Ireland is the original colony. Um, it was really heavily oppressed. About four-fifths of people in the 18th century in Ireland were Catholics, one-fifth were Protestants, and this one-fifth of Protestants had pretty much all of the land. Um, they were divided between Anglicans and Presbyterians, but we don't need to go into that. Uh, Catholics in Ireland had a whole bunch of uh, disabilities put on them. They had trouble getting married. They couldn't get married in Catholic churches. They had trouble owning land and giving land to their kids. They were taxed more than other people. And this whittled away their power, which was a real problem because they were the majority of the population. This led Irish administration, by the way, to be really heavy-handed. They couldn't have any kind of trust in, you know, the institutions of local government like people had in uh, uh, Britain itself, and so it was run by this thing called the Protestant Ascendancy, a cabal of uh, uh, Protestants who basically ran the parliament and the banks and all that sort of stuff. It was really gross. But as the 18th century wore on, Britain got more and more subjects who were Catholic. The first happens in 1774, when due to victories in the Seven Years' War, Britain gets part of Canada, which is settled around Montreal by French-speaking Catholics. Now, Britain can't just kick out all the Catholics and say, you know, you're gone, and they can't just stomp on them and say you're no longer Catholic because it's really hard to extend power in North America. So they have to make some sort of political conciliation. And in 1774, they make limited emancipation for Catholics in Canada, which pisses people in Britain off. People get even more pissed off in 1778 with the Papist Act, which is a, a parliamentary act which is meant to reduce some of the penalties against Catholics in Britain. 
And this leads to this huge riot in 1780 called the Gordon Riots, which is probably the biggest riots in uh, London history, where a massive mob action takes over the city for, I think, like eight days. Uh, there was a march on Parliament. There were attacks on embassies where Catholic churches were burned. Uh, there was a run on the Bank of England. It was really, really gross. And it was all driven by these Protestant associations, which had at their heart worries about Catholicism. And I mean, it wasn't like there were a ton of Catholics around in mainland Britain to get people pissed off. It was just that they were really, really worried about any kind of concessions being given to Catholics. Now, this continues on in the turn from the 18th to the 19th century. In 1798, there's a big uprising in Ireland uh, led by Catholics and Presbyterians, and this happens smack bang in the middle of the Napoleonic Wars, and it makes the government realize that they cannot continue going, subjecting the Irish people to as many horrible penalties as they've been going on. Uh, for this long. The solution is the Act of Union in 1800, where the Irish Parliament is dissolved and it's, you know, jammed together with the British Parliament. The deal that they make in exchange for this is the Prime Minister Pitt the Younger makes a promise to the Irish people that they will get Catholic emancipation if they agree to the Act of Union. So once the Act of Union happens, Pitt draws up a Catholic Emancipation Bill, and it's about to get passed, and then the king, George III, says that he will not sign it. He says that it would go against his coronation oath. I think he even thinks of resigning the, the, the crown. And this leads to a huge crisis. Pitt resigns. Catholic Emancipation does not go through. It comes up again in 1829, uh, when, again, the same kinds of problems with growing Catholic populations in Britain because of Irish immigration and also because of French immigration, uh, lots of Catholics fred France after, you know, the Republicans started killing lots of people. And it had a similar kind of effect. Uh, Catholic emancipation does go through in 1829, but it kills the ministry of Peel, the guy who pushes it. It happens because Daniel O'Connell, a popular politician in Ireland, gets himself elected as the MP of County Clare. But there's a problem. Because of all of these disabilities against Catholics, Catholics can't sit in Parliament. They can get elected because of a loophole, but they can't sit in Parliament. And this leads to a huge political problem. If Daniel O'Connell comes over to London and expects to sit in Parliament in Westminster and he gets denied, it will freak everybody in Ireland out and lead to a bunch of political problems. This wouldn't just be, you know, horrible for order. It would be expensive. And so Peel makes a devil's bargain. He thinks, okay, I have to get Catholic emancipation through. He makes a deal with the other uh, uh, side of the, the aisle, and they get Catholic emancipation passed. It ruins the Ministry of Peel. Um, he has to call an election, which he loses, and then it is the rise of another ministry whose name I forget. Some scholars even claim that this passage of Catholic emancipation and other passages of, of, of laws that limit the authority of the Anglican state 
lead to there being the crumbling of the confessional state, lead to a vast change in the constitution of England and Scotland and Wales and Ireland from being something that is like an ancient regime where you have a divine given ruler to something more akin to a modern nation state, which you get to see in 1832 with the Great Reform Act when British politics is uh, completely upended. So for a couple hundred years, Catholic emancipation is the third rail of British politics. Everybody knows that it has to happen. Everybody knows that it is an injustice. Everybody knows that having all of these, you know, penal laws against Catholics hurts the stability of the country. But it's impossible to arrange politically. And why is this? Well, we have to look at the day-to-day -day operation of what it meant to be an Anglican and how people defined what the religion was by opposition to Catholicism. People who were, you know, good, proud, beef-eating, you know, king-toasting, church-going people defined themselves against the hideous injustices of popery and papism in the Catholic Church. It wasn't entirely clear that they knew what they were defining themselves against. It wasn't like these people had a great idea of the Roman Catholic organization and why they hated it, but they hated it nonetheless. And this anti-Catholicism, I think, uh, on a daily basis, served as one of the foundational moments of British identity. Thanks very much for listening to Making of a Historian. Uh, I have to thank Jonathan Lear for the music and Duncan Barton for the image. If you like the show, rate us and review us on iTunes. If you're a British historian and want to poke at me for all of the errors that occurred in this half-baked episode, uh, do not hesitate to email me or mention something to me on the Facebook page. Uh, thanks very much for listening, and I'll see you again tomorrow.